And welcome to Small Town Mysteries, a show where three longtime friends from Massachusetts tell crazy and heartbreaking true stories filled with the extra flair of small town mystery. I'm Kate, here with Christine. Hello. And Rachel. Hello. Bringing you our next episode on what is truthfully the preventable murder of Eli Hart. This is not a case I'm familiar with. It's a very recent one. I got that from Rachel's title. I'm sure I agree with her assessment of that. We'll get into that just uh, in a little bit. If you're listening to this, it is the new year. It is 2024. And you have survived our holiday break. We have survived our holiday break, which I feel like is in and of itself very impressive. Holidays are quite the time. So we are back at it. Weekly episodes. And I'm going to just do the plug for the Instagram. So uh, at Small Town Mysteries Pod on Instagram. If you live in a small town, we love your suggestions. And we have plenty of weeks coming up in the new year. So plenty of cases that we'll uh, need to fill, time slots to fill. So uh, hit us up. Tell us about your small town or a small town you've heard of and the weird stuff that happens there. Maybe we'll look into it. So happy new year from all of your podcasting besties over here at Small Town Mysteries. Before we get into this week's episode, I'm going to highlight a missing person for this week. This week, I'm highlighting Zara Jones. She's missing from Washington, D.C. She's 14 years old and was last seen in the 1100 block of 12th Street Northwest on Wednesday, September 28th, 2002. And that is, as I said, Washington, D.C. Zara is a black female with a medium brown complexion, 5'7 in height, 170 pounds, with brown eyes and black and green hair. She was last seen wearing a pink t-shirt, blue jeans, and white and black shoes. Uh, The Metropolitan Police Department does have a texting tip system now, so you can either call 202-727-9099 or text 50411 if you have any information about the location of Zara Jones. Zara is listed as critical missing. There is concerns for her safety. So if you live in that area, please check that out uh, and see if she looks familiar to you, think you may have seen her, or if you have any information pertaining to her whereabouts or her safety. And now, Rachel, on to you. Hello, everybody. Hello. All right, just before I get started here, I just want to put out a trigger warning. Um, This is about a murder of a six-year-old boy. It is hard to listen to. It's hard to stomach. And if that's too much for you, join us next episode, okay? No hard feelings here. On May 20th, 2022, Jalissa Thaler, 29 years old at the time, took her six-year-old son, Eli, to Lake Minnetonka, National Park in Minnetrista, Minnesota. That is a tongue twister. Why are all the towns in Minnesota like Minnetrista, Minnetonka? I don't know. Like, what is that? What's is there like a meaning behind that? I'm. I have no idea. I didn't look that much curious. into it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to look into it either. But continue. <laughs> when fastened in his car seat in the back seat. Jalissa pointed a gun at her little boy and fired the gun multiple times at her own son. She then shoved her boy's lifeless body into the trunk of the car. Okay, so I know this is a lot, but we need to talk about life before this horrific event occurred. Um, Like I already said, serious trigger warning. I want to apologize ahead of time. After reviewing this case, I personally feel as though social services did not appropriately do their job in this situation. They allowed Eli to stay with his unstable mother, who ended up murdering him in the end. I'm going to try and limit the amount of shit I talk because I personally couldn't imagine being a social worker, especially nowadays. 
Social workers are run ragged, forced to care for too many children at once. And while I'm aware of that, I still believe that they failed Eli in this case. However, who am I to tell you what to believe? Y'all have your own brains and opinions and can come to your own conclusions. I think that's a perfectly fair disclaimer. So this happened in the town of Minatrista, which is located about 23 miles west of Minneapolis. The population in 2020 is a little bit over 8,000. So I actually picked a small town for once. So I'm proud of myself for starting off the new year this way. So can everybody just give me a little bit of a thank you. Golf clap. Thank you. Very appreciated. Okay. So first, I just want to talk a little bit about the mother, Jalissa. As you guys know, I prefer to focus on the victim rather than the perpetrator. But learning a little bit about Jalissa is key in understanding the case as a whole. Jalissa Thaler started drinking at the early age of 13 years old. At 16 years old, she abused opiates, and at 20 years old, she abused sedatives. When she was 21 years old, Jalissa was using LSD on a daily basis. That same year, in December of 2015, Child Protective Services received their first report about Jalissa. She was suspected of taking drugs while pregnant with Eli. So she definitely did have a tough life. I think I remember reading, too, that she had an awful childhood. So now I just want to briefly talk about Eli. Eli was born with a genetic disorder called Towns-Brocks syndrome, which here is a quote from Medline Plus. Um, Towns-Brocks syndrome is a genetic condition that affects several parts of the body. The most common features of the condition are malformation of the anal opening, abnormally shaped ears, and hand malformations, and most often affect the thumbs. People with this condition often have at least two of these major features. Other signs and symptoms of Towns-Brock syndrome can include kidney abnormalities, mild to profound hearing loss, eye abnormalities, heart defects, foot abnormalities, and genital malformations. These features vary among affected individuals, even within the same family. Mild intellectual disability or learning problems have been reported in about 10% of people with Towns-Brock syndrome. So I just wanted to kind of give this, so this, he did have this disease. However, his father, Tori, came out saying that, well, yes, he did have it. The malformations he had were not very significant, but he did have to have some surgeries when he was first born. And then also he had to wear hearing aids because that was one of the things, his hearing loss. But otherwise, he was pretty much a normal kid, according to his father. So when Eli was a year and a half old, Rice County Child Protection Services received a report that Eli's mother was delusional and despondent. She feared that a bug was trying to attack Eli. At times, the only way Eli could get his mother's attention was by banging his head off the table. Which, just to read that, makes me sick. I'm sorry. That makes my skin crawl. The case was closed after Delissa agreed to seek treatment for herself and Eli. Jalissa's delusions were often directed toward Eli's father, Tori. She claimed that Tori was violently abusing her. However, she did not have any evidence to support her claims against Tori. In 2019, Jalissa accused Tori of planting a bomb inside of her car. Police discovered a water bottle full of nails in her car. Jalissa then used this to get a restraining order against Tori. And since then, she had full custody of Eli. Jalissa then moved to Farmington. She had mental breakdowns in late 2020 and early 2021. In October 2020, police were called to Jalissa's residence 
since she was locked out. Eli was found naked in an extremely dirty and cluttered environment. There were broken eggs all over the floor along with various other foods in different states of decay. Oh, no. Okay, so this was, like, not an environment that was at all appropriate for a kid. No. Mm-hmm. Or anyone. No. But No, no. Kid. Nobody. Not even an animal. But especially no. not a kid. In addition, there was a disassembled fence laying on the kitchen floor, which obviously could have hurt an Eli at some point. Investigators had a difficult time finding clothes for Eli, but eventually managed to locate some PJs for him. Three months after this, Jalissa heard voices telling her to kill herself. Social workers discovered Eli home alone. He had cuts, matted hair, and he was not wearing his hearing aids. And like I stated earlier, he had poor hearing. A judge put Eli, five years old at the time, into legal custody of Dakota County. He was moved into foster care with Jalissa's cousin, Stephen Kronberg, and his wife, Nikita, in January of 2021. And a quote from that family was, he was family. Like, they took this boy in and they took care of him. And one thing that you will see is they tried to advocate for this boy the whole way through. And sadly... Sadly, they didn't get the result that they really should have. Like we we should be, obviously. We want, the end goal should be to reunite the parent and the kid. And I understand that. But there are some times where that is just not appropriate. It's just not. And and that is where I know that I would not be able to be a social worker. Because that goal of parental unification, reunification is like the primary goal of what these people do. But I I do agree. There's just some circumstances where I don't think it's possible um, for the safety of the child. And this would be a great example of a case where maybe that could be the goal five years down the line. But, you know, legitimate help was needed to bring this mother to a place where she could safely raise a child. Well, I also think this falls back on clearly like she had mental health issues. Oh, yeah. And it's like... and. I know that she was required to get help. Like, that was part of the plan to help get her son back and things like that. But I don't think she was always truthful. And I think she tried to, like, get out of it and kind of scan the system. Right. That's that's tricky. If you have an accountability measure like that built into your, you know, plan to regain custody and then you don't adhere to it, how's the system supposed to keep track of every individual person and what they're doing? And if they're adhering to these plans as they're required to, I mean, that just is an overburdening of the system in that regard. Um, So once children are put into foster care in Minnesota, a clock starts ticking. So within one year, the children must be reunited with their caregiver or be on track to be placed into a different permanent home. Which again is like, I like this and I don't. Like at the same time, like, of course, that should be the goal. But at the same time, I feel like this might rush some things. To a point where maybe the parent's not ready to take the kid back. It also would be hard on, because a lot of times foster kids aren't sent to their families. And so I think it's kind of to prevent, a, there's going to be attachment, but like imagine you have a kid in a foster family for five years. Like they're going to be in that family then, and then to then remove them back, that's going to be like, very stressful on the kid on the family that took them in so I can see like I see both sides right I I think this is the kind of situation that puts people 
especially social workers, putting a rock in a hard place because you can have that ultimate goal of parental reunification. But there's so many obstacles and so many things that make it seem like not always the best idea. I agree that both sides here are pretty, I would say, rock in a hard place. There's no good, you know, like, perfect solution here. So in order to get custody of her son back, Jalissa had to meet basic requirements. The court ordered her to treat and stabilize her mental health. She also needed to provide for Eli's medical needs and maintain clean and stable housing. She also needed to remain drug-free and would submit to random drug tests. And in addition, she also needed to have age-appropriate conversations with Eli. In the next 11 months, Jalissa would deny any wrongdoing and was focused on accusing Tori of attempting to hurt her and Eli. I was going to say, it's a, it's a red flag that she's not taking any accountability. Yes. yes. That's bad. Huge. She would ignore instructions from and also lie to social workers. She would then beg for them to return her son to her. Like I said, it, it's so evident that Jalissa clearly continued to struggle with her mental health. And then here's a quote from a social worker. At one visit, mom told Eli that she is living off of Mountain Dew and cigarettes. Mom said, I just can't function and I don't know what to do. So that's alarming, to say the least. Jalissa missed or tampered with the unpredictable drug tests. So that should be another thing against her, right? Like, if you're tampering with that stuff, that means that you're not ready. In late April, she was arrested for stealing pain medication and needles from a clinic. Jalissa stopped attending therapy in October. She moved multiple times, four times in four months. Caseworkers also suspected that she was homeless at one point. In November, she was kicked out of drug testing for being disruptive. Accusations against Tori did not stop. However, caseworkers started to realize that the claims were false. Tori started visiting with Eli and the two developed a strong bond. Caseworkers believe that Tori was a stabilizing influence in Eli's life, which that's this is I feel like almost sucks the most because he wanted to be involved. He wanted custody of his son. Supervised visits between Eli and his mother went poorly. During one visit, Jalissa dug her fingernails into a social worker's staff member's hand and threw trash at her. Like, what? At a visit a week later, a social worker reported that Jalissa would ignore Eli for long periods of time and instead would just stare into space as Eli loudly begged her to play with him. It, it is so clear this woman is sick. She needs help. It was almost November, meaning that the state mandate deadline was coming closer. So having the child reunited with their parent within a year or being in the process of being adopted within a year. Sherry Larson was appointed as Eli's guardian to represent Eli's best interests. Larson filed a court report with the hope of the case going into permanency. This would have ended Julissa's parental rights and one that allow the county to place Eli in his father's custody. Julissa would have the opportunity to challenge this decision in the courtroom. While the child protection worker shared some of Larson's concerns, they felt as though Julissa was meeting some parts of her case plan. The social worker was worried that this would further complicate the effort to strip Julissa's rights to her son, Eli. After some arguing, the next step was trialing a home visit, which was signed off by a judge. This was planned for December 22nd so that Eli would not miss any school. Until then, Eli had overnight visits with, her mo with his mother, but still remained in the Kronberg's custody. 
One night, while dropping Eli off, Jalissa came flying down the road, clearly going faster than the 20-mile-per-hour speed limit. And Eli was sobbing as he got out of the car. Jalissa was not doing what she was supposed to do at this time. She was actually caught stalking Eli's foster family. Later in the month of December, Jalissa and a roommate parked on the street in front of the Kronberg's house. They had binoculars in their hands, and they sat there for hours watching them. Look into the next day. Um, The Kronberg family got up early around 3 a.m. to go out for work when they spotted the car and contacted the police. They attempted to confront Jalissa, but the car just drove away. Freaked out, the Kronbergs reached out to the social worker to describe what happened. The response you would expect is for the home visit plan to be changed altogether and maybe even pushed farther back since this type of behavior is extremely inappropriate. Instead, the social worker decided to move Eli back with Jalissa two days earlier than what was originally planned after this event occurred. Mm. How? How? How did that happen? I would just really love to know the reasoning behind that. Like, it, I keep saying this is not a job I could do. These are not decisions I would, you know, be able to make. But I would love to hear the explanation for why someone would make that decision or think that that was wise. Because I have no inkling of why that would ever be considered an acceptable idea. No. Here's an email from the social worker to the school. I also want to say that the social worker's name is all over the place, but I personally have not put her name in just because, like I said in the beginning, I don't think that she handled this well. But then again, I'm not a social worker and I don't know what it's like to be one. All right. So here's the email. Hi, I am the social worker who works with Eli Hart and his mother, Jalissa Thaler. I was made aware of some issues that occurred last night and this morning, and I know that Eli's mom called school to see if he was there this morning. We have made the decision to move Eli back with his mom two days early after what occurred last night. I have told her that she is responsible for bringing him to and from school tomorrow and Wednesday. She will be picking him up at three tonight for his usual Monday therapy session. Like, What's the reasoning? I'm at a loss. I just, once again, I'm not in that field. I'm not familiar with what their policies and guidelines are for making a decision like this, but I don't see any rational explanation for why that would be seen as a good idea. And the the Kronbergs agreed with this, like saying that she just wasn't ready to take them back. There were so many red flags. And they pushed, like they really did. They were constantly calling the social worker being like, I don't think she's ready, blah, blah, blah. And here's a quote from them. It's actually really sad, but even before then, there were so many red flags. And had they listened or looked at them, or done their jobs to protect Eli, then I truly believe he would still be here today. And I kind of, that's where I find myself too. All right. So the first day Eli was returned to his mother, Child Protection Services received an email from Eli's school stating that Jalissa was driving recklessly when she dropped off and picked up Eli. Like within the first day, we're already having an issue. Ten days later, on December 30th, Sherry Larson, the court-appointed guardian, was so concerned that she recommended Eli to be taken away from Jalissa again for his own safety. Jalissa was also repeatedly calling Larson, attempted to get visits with Eli's father canceled. When that failed, she filed for another order of protection against him, including many false accusations that she had used previously. When bringing up the 
OFP, Jalissa filed. The social worker told Jalissa that the county had no concerns regarding Tori. Jalissa was so frustrated that she hung up on the social worker. Jalissa actually slammed the door in the face of another social worker who dropped Eli off after a visit with his father. Jalissa missed too many parent education sessions and therefore was kicked out in mid-January. So my question is, if she's kicked out of this plan, why does she still have the kid? That is alarming. Like, very alarming. Jalissa had also lied to Child Protection, stating that she had graduated from her mental health program, but she was no longer attending. The program director confirmed that this was untrue and Jalissa was lying. Child Protection was also worried that Jalissa was not being 100% honest with her therapists and was seeking new providers that knew nothing about her prior history. So she was trying to cheat the system. Despite all of this, officials allowed for the trial home visit to continue. The social worker took Jalissa off drug tests after only two months of clean tests. Two months? Like, I don't know what the actual procedure is, but two months does seem... It seems quick. Yeah. On top of all of this, there was evidence that Eli's behavior was changing. At school, he was becoming more aggressive toward other children and even punched other kids. I think this is an email to the social worker from the school saying, I asked each student to give me an example of someone being mean to them on the playground or in school. E.H. proceeded to tell me that his mom pushes him. The other students seem shocked by this example. It just seems like red flag after red flag. Um, and then the, the social worker comes back with, I appreciate the update, and it's interesting that he would make that statement. It's not something that CPS would take as a maltreatment report to assess, unfortunately. However, I do want you to keep documenting everything. I'm sorry, but if there's already, like, a prior involvement, if there's anything like this, shouldn't you, like, hardcore look into it? Yeah, that that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's also on the school to call the parent, so I'm wondering if they did talk to her or not, but it's bad. Later that month, Eli's play therapist contacted the social worker to tell her about a situation where Eli had hid in a cabinet after his mother had a confrontation with the therapist. In early March, another report was shared from Eli's school. Here describes Eli's interactions with one of his teachers. So, Eli, my mom was hurting me. Teacher, what was she doing? And then he proceeds to grab the teacher's wrist and squeezes. So clearly there was some type of physical abuse going on. There is no evidence or record that child protection did anything about this whatsoever. Meanwhile, Jalissa was continuing to threaten to discontinue contact between her son and his father, Tori. In early March, Tori filed for custody of Eli in Hennepin County Family Court. Once again, Jalissa responded by filling out another OFP against Tori. There was a hearing on March 30th where Larson told the court that Jalissa was trying to isolate Eli. She was trying to prevent visitation time with Eli's father by filing false abuse reports. Larson expressed concerns that Eli was not safe in the care of his own mother. And then here's a quote. It seems like overall you are doing whatever it takes to thwart any visitation or parenting time by Mr. Hart, the judge told Thaler. I'm very concerned by your actions here. The judge rejected closing the case and scheduled another hearing in May. So this is like another thing where I'm like, clearly they know they're not ready. But like, I don't know. I just don't understand why more wasn't taken okay this part gets my blood boiling the social worker was supposed to have one more final visit with Jalissa, but Jalissa canceled 
and the social worker just didn't even bother to reschedule. Like what? Yeah, there were so many, so many oversights that happened. Jalissa was supposed to be going back to parent education sessions, but records show that the caseworker never actually checked to see if Jalissa was actually going and attending those meetings. And then here's a quote from the social worker saying, I know Jalissa will throw fit and I'm tired of dealing with her. So her response to not liking this parent was to just like wipe her hands clean and pretend as if nothing was wrong, apparently. Like, I'm sorry, but that's your actual job is to deal with parents who are having a difficult time and to protect the kids. And like clearly the social worker was not concerned about protecting the kids. No, she... That's like disgusting. Very selfish explanation for why she would sort of discontinue the follow-ups. I don't know. I wasn't ready to sling blame earlier, but Mm, now hearing that, that's so selfish She put her own convenience and ease over the well-being and life of this child. And that makes it preventable. Right. Like, oh, I don't want to meet with her. I'm done. I'm just not going to do anything about it. I don't care about the kid. You know, there are some jobs where it's okay to be like, I don't want to deal with this person. Therefore, I'm not going to. And it's perfectly acceptable and fine to do that. For example, I'm a bartender. My boss told me I have free license to tell anyone to just leave. Like, I can kick people out of my bar if I if they're causing me specific trouble. And he said, and I'll back you up on that because I trust your intuition that you're not just going to kick people out left and right for being annoying or whatever. That if someone's truly causing you a disturbance, that you would make that judgment call to have them leave. For the record, I've never had to. But this is not a situation where me kicking someone out directly harms a child. You know, like, it's not a comparable job responsibility yeah I'm, I'm dropping a firm line on this I, this was preventable and at the mm-hmm. same time the thing is if she was not able to handle this parent she should have had a supervisor she could have talked to she should have passed the buck because that's how it works and also just there- consider that if you are not capable of handling this woman please imagine her six-year-old child and whether or not exactly. he's able to handle this woman imagine what he's going through in every day of his life because you've decided that you don't want to deal with her. If you as an adult woman with training in this specific field don't feel like you can handle this woman, the absolute worst response is to make this child bear the brunt of it. Very well said. So at least in this case, a different social worker was sent out to check on Eli because apparently this other one was like, I don't want to do it. So a different social worker employee uh, agreed to pick up Eli at his mother's apartment She was devastated with what she saw. He had dark circles underneath his eyes, and he looked as though he had not showered in days. And then Eli told the social worker that they had driven around in his mother's car all night. So getting drugs? Yeah, or even, I don't know, part of it does kind of, maybe she was like bipolar too. Some of this kind of does kind of a little bit. But that could also just be drugs, right? Like, I feel like drugs can cause mania. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And LS, like LSD, if she was taking that every day, that definitely has some pretty crazy side effects. And it can even have side effects like after taking it yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. You can have like permanent side effects from that yeah. depending on like. And if she was taking it every day, I don't know how long she was taking it for. But like just the idea of being like, oh, I was, I was taking LSD every day. Like that has to have long term effects. All right. I'm going to try and say this without vomiting. On May 10th, Jalissa received full custody of Eli. I think that's inexcusable. I know. 
I know. Given the facts presented here, and presuming that the social worker in charge of the case was aware of the facts presented here, which, by all accounts, it seems as though she was, I think that's unacceptable. But this also goes on to, like, it's not just the social worker at this case. It's it's the judge, too. Because the judge was the one who was like, okay, I'm going to push it back because I don't think you're ready yet. And then was like, oh, no, you're ready now. But, like, what changed? Right. That That is also questionable. I I just also know that the judge, his basis is what he's given for information. So a lack of documentation of these events or not presenting them fully to the judge, aka not doing her job to the full extent of what is required of her, could lead to the judge making a wrong judgment. I'm not saying that's what happened in this case, just that it. I still feel like it falls to the social worker to to make sure that all the appropriate evidence is presented to the judge, that the judge can make the informed decision for the safety of the child. You know, in family law, when you take the bar exam and family law is featured, the only thing you have to know is that you always focus on the best interests of the child. They even made an acronym for it, B-I-O-C. That's all you need to know for the bar exam for family law. And that's so astounding to me that that can be such a central tenet of this field that even in the legal side of it we're trained to be like it's the child it's the child it's the child the most important part here is that the child is well and taken care of and then to have that not followed is it's frustrating like i i'm frustrated that this happened as you should be and i wish like this happened so this happened in 2022 this happened last year and it happens a lot And I just, I know, but the thing is, like, you would think that, like, this isn't happening as frequently, that we've made the steps to change our system. I know you guys are both, like, just nodding at me, being like, you wish. I do. Yeah, in an ideal world, but fat chance. All right. So I'm just going to say the sentence again, just because you need to know. So on May 10th, as I said, Jalissa received full custody of Eli. Nine days later, on May 19th, Jalissa walked around a sports goods store asking for bullets that would blow the largest hole into something. Nine fucking days. The following day, just 10 days after the child protection case had closed and five months since the beginning of the trial home visit, police stopped Jalissa as she was driving near her apartment. One of the car's tires was just gone. The back window of the car was shot out. Jalissa told police that kids with BB guns had shot at her. There was blood found spattered inside the car jalissa claimed that this was because of deer meat Mm, what no probably not jalissa was allowed to return to her apartment however officers stayed with the car and then when they opened the trunk they found eli's remains in a dumpster only a short distance away officials found a car seat with bullet holes in it authorities state that jalissa shot eli up to nine times with a shotgun while he was in the car and then attempted to hide his body in the trunk. Which is also just stupid. It's just so fucking frustrating. It's just so frustrating. It, it is. And, and, and on a completely surface level... Level? I don't know how to phrase that. She also clearly had no idea what she was doing because she was not inconspicuous. She went right into the store, asked for something to blow a big hole, and just didn't have a tire. So she looks weird driving through town. She had a body in her trunk. She you know, just threw a bullet hole riddled car seat in a dumpster. This is not well thought out, except for the fact that she went and, you know, bought the bullets. Like, 
that's premeditation. But the rest of it, there's no, like, mastermind planning here or something. She got fed up with her kid and shot him. I just am puzzled by how much it seems like she fought to get Eli back and to prevent his father from getting custody only to do this 10 days after getting full custody. Like, it seems like it has to be a control type of thing. Mm -hmm. What I was going to say is I have to wonder if he was killed so that he couldn't be taken again. Yeah, it definitely seems to me like it was some type of control that she wanted. If I can't have you, no one can. But in its most extreme form. It's interesting to me that she didn't commit suicide then. Yeah. Right? If you have that mentality, wouldn't you? I I don't know. I, it's hard to theorize about these things because it doesn't make sense to the normal person. All right. So let's get into the trial. In February, Jalissa was tried for the murder of her son and was found guilty and therefore sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So at least that's good. Jalissa claimed that she had nothing to do with Eli's death. She flipped off the courtroom and continued to claim her innocence when she was sentenced for life in prison for killing her son. Then here's a quote. When Thaler was asked if she wanted to address the court, she agreed and said, I'm innocent. Fuck you all. You're garbage. Well, that says a lot. Delusional. Delusional. Yes. And then family. Here's pictures with Eli and his dad, Tori. Look how happy this kid looks. Like, this breaks my heart. This is who he should have been with. And how happy his dad looks. I know. Yeah, that's really just, like... Very disappointing that he had a a person that seemed like was there for him and wanted to care for him. And they just like it was his dad. That's easy. Right. You know, it was a parent, too. It wasn't like a grandparent or an aunt and uncle, which I feel like a lot of the times that's the conflict is it's parental reunification. That's always the goal. But this is right. You know, like and if this parent has proven himself to be reliable, why didn't he? I think it was just all the accusations she was true making. yeah yeah i mean that yeah and also there is some bias still against fathers yeah yeah giving kids to moms more of the time mm-hmm. eli's father tori hart has filed a federal lawsuit against dakota county accusing them of negligence yeah sounds That's right funny. yeah I'm, I'm i get that i'm on board with that i saw somewhere that it was like only like seventy five thousand dollars and i was like that's it that might be a that's realistic it. goal But, like, that's crazy to think about, isn't it? Like, it is. And then here are some quotes from Tori that he said during court when he was testifying against Jalissa. Quote, he just really liked being social, talking and playing with others. He was always really happy, outgoing, always full of energy. Always. Eli loved to blow bubbles, go fishing, swing on the swings at the park and eat meatballs at Carbones. He was everything to me. He completed my life. Just love spending time with me. I love spending time with him. And then remembering Eli, there's this really cute picture of him in the playground playing on the, what do you call the, they're not monkey bars. It's like the circle ones that go I have around. No do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking do about. do not know. But I don't know what they're called. What they're called. I probably would just call them monkey bars. Circular monkey bars. Round monkey bars. <sighs> but again, like he looks like he's having the time of his life in this picture. And then here's just some quotes from different people in his family. Everyone knows Eli Hart was the victim of this senseless and horrific crime, but Eli was so much more, said Josephine. Josephine is Tori's fiance. 
Eli was an amazing six-year-old boy who always woke up full of energy and laughter. Eli was an innocent, loving six-year-old boy. He did not deserve this. Eli deserved to grow and have a safe and happy life. And then remember the Kronbergs, the foster family? Um, Nikita Kronberg said that heart meant the world to so many people. He was so kind and amazing, always had a smile on his face. He made friends so easily and, want- and wanted to explore all the time. He was the strongest six-year-old that I knew. He could easily do 20 push-ups and have a huge smile on his face while doing them. Sounds like a great kid. I know. And in his honor, the Eli Hart Memorial Playground in Mound, Minnesota has been founded because he just loved playgrounds. So they're trying to get a playground in his name, which I think is beautiful. Here's a quote that I took directly off the website. We think it's important to remember him for who he was instead of how he died. Eli was a bright light, and we want this light to shine on something positive for him, his family, his classmates, and teachers, and our entire community. That's a beautiful sentiment. I know. That's why I had to put it. I couldn't change it because I just thought it was just, like, written so beautifully. I agree. Eli had a gigantic, toothless smile, and he was always laughing. I don't know if you can see this picture right here, but he has, like, two of his front teeth gone. But he's so cute. Eli had a very close and special bond to his father. It was often described as magnetic. Together, they loved to play with cars, build various things, do art, read books, and watch movies. But what they enjoyed by far the most was their time outside together. Eli loved going to the playground. Eli's dad and his fiance loved taking Eli to the park to play. And these are some of the memories that they hold extremely close now. And then on the website, it says, help us build the playground in Eli's name and raise awareness of the broken foster system. And then there's a a link where you can like donate now. And then on the website, there's like, about Eli and then about us. So this is um just from the about us section. And it says, we are a group of community members and Eli's loved ones that, c- that came together because we had to do something. Eli's death was such a tragedy that truly hurt our entire community. And after learning that Eli loved playgrounds and that Surfside Park needed a new playground, we decided to lead the effort to raise money for the Eli Hart Memorial Playground. It's a great initiative. And I agree with what they say about remembering him for who he was during his life, not how he died, and focusing on that aspect of the six-year-old who clearly lit up the lives of everyone he came into contact with. That was a sad one, Rachel. No, I know. I'm sorry. I just broke you guys. (laughs) I literally, I knew it was going to be bad. And I was like, I was like, oh, I don't want to start off the new year with something so like depressing. But then I was like, everything we cover is depressing. I mean, to be fair, you Mm -hmm. did text us and warn us earlier today, but I still was prepared. (laughs) Um, I feel like I should take your warnings more seriously at this point. Like, I I should know better that when you say, get ready to get emotional, it's going to be devastating. And, um, yeah, I didn't listen. So. I know, but at the same time, that's why I felt like this case was so important to cover. Because I'm going through this and you guys are both thinking about numerous cases that ring similar bells. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's why we do this. Right. Like, that echoes the importance of covering a case like this is that there are so many similar cases. This is not an isolated incident. This is something that happens in all 50 states across the board, across the country, um, and is a serious issue. Well, I just hope that Eli is smiling and playing on his jungle gym. That's all I can hope for. That toothless little grin of his. 
Dude, it's so cute. I keep looking at it and it just makes me happy. <laughs> I'll make sure to include that picture on the Instagram post. Well, thank you, Rachel, for your care and depth of research on this. Um, I really appreciate the care you gave to this. It was tough. I imagine um, but you handled it really well. Thanks for the emotional turmoil and I'll see you next week. Happy New Year, everybody. Sorry for uh, sorry for that. But thanks for sticking with us. Get ready for a whole year of tragic content. As I said about seven times earlier this episode, at Small Town Mysteries Pod on Instagram, if you want to send us info about your hometown or a case that you're familiar with, we might cover it. You'll get a little shout out in our episode. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, also send us pictures of your dogs because we still get one of occasionally. And cats or bunnies. Cats, cats, any pet, any pet. Any pet. Even, I will even say reptiles, even though I'm scared of snakes. But if that makes you happy, then you can send them to us. Please do. Just no spiders. Thanks. Um, <laughs> that would be a jump scare if I opened the pod Instagram. It was just like a picture of a spider. And I was like, look at my baby. I'm like, okay, actually, no thank you. <laughs> anyway, we love to hear from you. Come spiral with us next week. Bye. Bye.